Hi friends, this is Chidima, also known as the Type A Hippie, and this is the Type A Hippie Podcast, Cheekast episode 45. And I am on with someone that I can honestly say I've been a fan of for a little while, and I don't have many people that I'm a fan of. So uh, I have on with me Rabia Chowdhury, and you probably know who she is, but I'm going to, if you have been away from the podcast scene, living under a rock or somewhere else, I will let her introduce herself in her own words. So Rabia, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me, Chidima. My pleasure. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, you know, if people have heard of me, usually it's because of Serial, the first season, um, and the case of the state of Maryland versus Adnan Sayed. But um, my role in that podcast was to just bring the case to Sarah Koenig. Um, professionally, I'm an attorney. I um, practiced immigration and civil rights law for over a decade. And the last five, six years, I I wrapped up my practice, and in the last five, six years, I've been working in national security policy um, with New America Foundation, and most recently with the U.S. Institute of Peace. Um, I'm still licensed as an attorney, and just in case I need it, <laughs> you never know. Exactly. Um, but I also, yeah, I'm a podcaster. Uh, I have a podcast called Undisclosed with two other uh, amazing attorneys where we look at wrongful convictions. Um, and then I have a more recent podcast called The 45th, where me and two other really smart, sharp women... I talk about politics and everything crazy coming out of the 45th administration. And so that is really funny. I was telling Rabia during the pre-call that this is episode 45. And so it's funny that that is uh-huh. a podcast. Mm-hmm. There are no, no such things as coincidences. That's right. <laughs> That's right, friend. I am with you. So let's jump right in because we have only a limited amount of time, but Hopefully, this is only the first conversation of many, and uh, we'll continue this conversation um, over time. So one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to you, and I'm a very persistent person, friends, so I'm doing my very best to reach out to the very best people, and the very best people are just people with a story, really is what it is. And so one of the initial reasons I reached out to you was because of your intimate relationship with immigration and just the criminal justice system and how it differs between groups of people, Mm -hmm. uh, faith perspective and a non Saeed's case was really, um, so serial was the first podcast I ever listened to. And I think a lot of people cut their teeth on that podcast and then have since branched out. But when I was listening to undisclosed, I realized that Anand could be my brother. He's not, but, you know, he's very intelligent. Um, You can tell because of the way he articulates and just the experience that he's had, which I can't even imagine. But it's just one of those things that a lot of times people think the, and I'm using air quotes, the criminal or the person that's incarcerated is someone else, you know, and it very well could be your brother, your cousin, you know, uh, a family member, uh, very easily depending on what is going on around. And so I guess my first question to you is how has, um, since the first the first season of undisclosed, uh, working with a case that you are so intimately familiar with over, you know, to now 
where I'm at is the arc of um, Freddie Gray. I listened to Jamar Huggins um, earlier, but how has this changed you as a person, like hearing other people's stories and the pain of a wrongful conviction? Well, you know, I'll be honest. I, um, and I want to be very upfront about this when I speak to people. I am not someone who has been a criminal justice reform advocate or an advocate for incarcerated people, you know, for in, in my career ever at all. I've done a lot of advocacy work around different issues, but criminal justice and, and mass incarceration has never been one of those. And I say this with, um, you know, I want to be completely honest, my connection to, you know, even in my practice, I never practiced criminal law on purpose because I was a law student when Adnan was arrested and I just didn't, um, I just didn't have the emotional bandwidth to sure. deal with it after experiencing that. Uh, but there are people who've been doing this work for decades and have been quietly doing it. They have not had the advantage of serial and these, you know, this sudden popularity on these issues um, was never um, there for them. And, you know, so one thing that I have learned is um, even as an attorney who should have known better, as somebody who saw Adnan's case and should have known better, is the pervasiveness of these issues, is how that um, they are very similar, especially in wrongful convictions, uh, you have red flags that occur, um, the same kind of red flags over and over again. And when you see those red flags, I think it's a signal to everybody to stop and, and take another look at that case. Um, and I realize how even I, you know, to me, Adnan was like a little brother. And sure. he's my little brother's best friend. I've known him since he's 13. There's a personal connection. But I just as just like everybody else, also dehumanized other criminals. Because in my head, Adnan was not like other criminals. Adnan is not where he, where others belong. Right. And yeah, and uh, so that has been kind of a painful realization that I am uh, no different than many other people in terms of who I think belongs in prison and doesn't belong in prison and makes sense in prison and who deserves a new chance. And um, and I have changed a lot on these issues. I have learned a lot. And um, and I'm thankful for that. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things, too, is that if we're not, if I'm not growing and moving forward, whether it's um, intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, right, I'm slowly kind of dying and regressing and moving backwards. And yeah. as we speak with different people, even in this role, you know, myself, too, as a podcaster and hearing people's stories, there is a level of effect that it has on me and some more than others. Um, and to your point, a lot of times without having that connection, I know for me, one of the episodes that really broke me was the, it was in the first season of undisclosed and there was a young woman talking to incarcerated people and they had been listening to, it was in, it's in Ohio, this like Marion Correctional yeah. uh, rehabilitation facility. Right. And yeah. they had been listening to Serial and then also listening to Undisclosed and just hearing these incarcerated people speaking about their own lives along with the impact that hearing about people like themselves had on them was pretty powerful. And I was in tears because I too have, I mean... We're a product of what's around us, but then also we have an obligation to do a little bit better than what's around us also and kind of dig yeah. in and see where our blind spots are. So that uh, episode um, resonated with a lot of people. And I think one of the most interesting things about that, and it was true for me too, 
uh, was that we weren't talking about guys who were claiming innocence. We're talking about guys who take responsibility for the crimes they committed, but we, we still were able to feel their humanity. And if anything, I mean, what we have to understand, also knowing the history of mass incarceration, of incarceration in this country, what the real goal is, because it, it is not to heal people. It is That's not right. to rehabil rehabilitate. It is to dehumanize people. It is punitive. And it is a socioeconomic instrument um, to really debilitate certain communities. And so when you understand that and you and then you hear these stories and you're like, these guys may have committed, done terrible things, but there is still redemption um, to be found in their stories and in their lives. But we just throw people away. And our incarceration system is meant to throw people away, forget them. That's how the powers that be want it. So, and we have to fight back. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I was beyond yeah. stunned when I watched uh, <clears throat> Ava, and I always, her last name is escaping me, um, the Netflix documentary. Um, I think it's called 13th and it talks about the yeah. exception yeah. and just the amount of money that is made by corporations and pri some private billions. citizens. It, it yeah. makes it's in the billions. throw up, you know, yeah. on the backs of human beings. And these are some of the same people, which I'm very sweet and I'm very spicy and I'm about to get on the soapbox right now. These are the people that claim pro-life in certain right. perspectives, right? But they don't want to, it's pro-life until the baby is born, right? And then if it doesn't look like them, then it's, we're not interested any longer. And God forbid right. they're a black body or a brown body, you know, in this, you know, school to prison or foster system to prison pipeline. And then it's like, oh, well, I don't really care about those lives. And that doesn't really matter to me. At yeah. all. Um, so you had mentioned red flags and something that I thought about as I'm still listening to the Freddie Gray story, the killing of Freddie Gray. And I like that you all had that title. Um, yeah. And so are one of the red flags like it seems as if and you know more than me, because although I don't know how you all record episodes and like how far in advance you record them based on what's released. I'm mm -hmm. behind though. I'm kind of second, uh, second episode, but okay. it seems as if suppression of evidence is problematic. Definitely in that like Baltimore PD is not getting gold stars right now, um, for historically either. Right. And so right. is that one of the red flags that you were mentioning, because you were talking about red flags within cases. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, when there are gaps in evidence, you have to ask why you have to ask who has access to that evidence and who the gap serves. Right. So, um, you're, like you said, you're a little bit behind. We record, we're only about two, two weeks ahead. Okay. So when you hear an episode, it means we recorded it about two weeks ago. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, we, one of our recent episodes, I think it was the one last week, uh, was about the CCTV footage in this case. Yes. And we're talking about it in an area, an urban community that, you know, it, it, the streets are lined with these cameras, okay, because the cops keep an eye on these communities. People cannot step out of their homes without being watched. That's right. But so when Freddie Gray was uh, detained and injured, um, other than the citizen witnesses, there were these cameras up in the sky watching. And we should have absolutely no question as to what happened and why it happened to him, where he was injured and how he was injured and who did it because of all these cameras, right? But guess what? 
um, that footage is kind of strange. Um, when the footage has been released by the Baltimore City Police, it passed through their hands first. Amelia Justine, uh, Amelia McDonald Perry, who's one of our investigative reporters, has watched, <laughs> I think, thousands of hours of this footage over and over and over, and she has found places where the video was spliced. Where it's been, where it's been scrubbed, where data is missing, like the date and the timestamps have been removed, and even footage where it's like, you know, they'll say this is like the same white, like they, because data and time is missing, they will try to date it by using, according to the Baltimore City Police, like this white truck that drove past this neighborhood, and they're like, well, see, here's a white truck on camera one, camera two, camera three, but it's so obvious that it's not even the same white truck because it's got different shit in the back of its, you know, uh, <laughs> open section. And so, yeah, the data has been manipulated. The videotape has been manipulated. So when you have this, and this is considered like hard technical evidence, right? Sure. But when you have gaps in that, when you, in a Nantes case, for example, we had, uh, the police had incoming phone call records. Well, where, but their story was very much involved outgoing calls from his phone, but those records are missing. Why? Why does nobody have them? Why does nobody have uh, the the, the um, pager records for the victim? Right. Why do, like when you know there are sometimes muck-ups, but there are sometimes deliberate yeah. gaps in evidence, and then you have to ask why. Yeah, no, that's, big red. Flag. Yeah, it 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 saddens me. I was listening to Embedded, and the first episode I listened to for Embedded. I don't know if you listened to that podcast on NPR. No. It is really good. I think you would like it because they take a story out of the news and then they go deeper and they actually almost embed themselves into the community. And so the first story I listened to was on immigration and it was talking. And so that opened my eyes because I am the daughter of Nigerian immigrants. And thankfully, especially in the current climate, my parents are both naturalized citizens. So that is as far as immediacy, I'm not, concerned about them. Now, as far as family friends um, and family friends, which, you know, it sounds like we come from similar community. And so far as anyone who's older than me is like an auntie or an uncle, right? And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, there are other people with other circumstances that where that may not have been the case. And with these, the so-called not travel ban, right, which we know what it is. that's been coming through with um, number 45, it is, um, it's more alarming. And I realized that I did not, part of the privilege that I sit on or enjoy is that I didn't have to think about that until more recently. I've made a choice to educate myself a little bit more. And so one of the things that I was not aware of was that if someone does get in trouble with the U.S. criminal justice system, they are perhaps in jail or in prison. So they're incarcerated, they do their time and they go back into community that can kind of fast track them into immigration, the immigration system, even if they, this was the first offense, it wasn't violent, for example. And so then they, there's almost like a double jeopardy attached where they then may be detained in, um, an immigration jail and then the proceedings get started for them to um, be deported. If, am I understanding this correctly? Uh, yeah, b- pretty much. Um, I will say this: that in many instances, there is no, no such thing as an immigration jail, and they are they end up being detained um, in general population prisons. States yeah. make money when when um, the feds say we've got some immigration detainees, and so they'll 
make beds for them and they'll make a lot of money from that. And so, so they can be in, I mean, I've had clients who are just like, you know, did something like they're here on a student visa. They violated their visa by, let's say, taking a 10 hour week job on cash, delivering pizzas. That's a violation of their visa. Mm-hmm. And they ended up, they end up for months and sometimes years in prison with like violent offenders and they will get assaulted there and hurt. I mean, it's ridiculous. It really, really is. And, and the thing is, I just, it, it baffles me (laughs) again, pro-life, right? It baffles me that people who claim certain faith, um, there's a lack of compassion and understanding, especially when a lot of times people that are American citizens by birth, um, are faulty on the fact line, like on the timeline, right? And on facts. Right. Um, right. In, ter- in terms of historical facts, I just, I started a social justice book club and the book we read was In the Country We Love um, mm. by Diane Guerrero. Uh, the, she's, also, she's on uh, Orange is the New Black. And towards the end of the book, she talks about fiscal or financial facts about what immigrants how much money they pour into the country based on their work, you know, and how little they're paid and paying into social security and a lot of different programs that they don't use and they're not able to utilize. And so it's definitely an eye opener. What is one of the things that, um, you have found to be very helpful as you advocate for the American Muslim community and, kind of correcting misconceptions, um, changing the narrative, building interfaith relationships. What is something that you have found as someone who is liaised between multiple, you know, we all have an intersectionality, right, of our identities. And so as you've done this work, what is something that has been helpful to the conversation and what can people and not to put it on you, because one thing I have low tolerance for is when someone comes to me as a member of a marginalized community asking me questions when I could do some work, you know, it's <laughs> me, do, you know, right? It's like, you can do you some know, work about this because I'm tired right now. So <laughs> there, um, it's interesting just yesterday. Well, I, I, I have a, a couple comments to make about what you just, um, said earlier about the, the people of a certain faith thing, but. I'll circle back to that and then answer your question. But just yesterday I had a conversation um, because this has been marinating in my head since like for the last 24 hours because I still can't believe I had this conversation with a, with a lady who is a physician um, and she's very well-meaning, I think. um, And she wanted to speak to somebody about, uh, she serves, uh, you know, all kinds of communities. She's based in a large metropolitan area in the United States. uh, But she, tends to, she does get South Asian clients and Middle Eastern clients and mm-hmm. she's an OBGYN. So these women come to her and, um, sometimes she has to refer them to the doctors and sometimes they're male doctors. And these women are sometimes accompanied by their husbands. And for, for whatever, I mean, it could be so many different reasons that the husband speaks instead of the wife speaking. It could be language. It could be, she's a new immigrant. It could be right. her not understand. It could be a lot. It, and it could also be a situation where there's a, there's a, there's a potential dynamic, a power dynamic issue, but there's lots of different reasons that can happen. I know these communities, um, and the men or the women in this situation will say, we prefer to go to female doctor. Could you refer us to a female? And this physician who is a woman, um, was, is so angry about that. 
and she, she's she's white. She's very angry because she said, "I don't want to accommodate their um, their request because it buys it." Basically, what I'm doing is I am allowing that system to like perpetuate. Right? I'm allowing them to to continue to segregate and to continue and to to exercise like modesty norms that I don't believe in. And I was kind of taken aback um, because she's like, you know, I'm not part of those Trump people who say go back to where you came from or assimilate now. But I also refuse to perpetuate this kind of stuff. And I said to her, I said, you know, look, I'm an um, I'm an American. I wasn't born here, but I was raised in the United States of America. I am a very loud ass woman. I am very confident. <laughs> I have represented mostly men in my life. I am not shy of, you know, dealing with the opposite sex. I just had a baby at 42. It was a high risk pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And, um, at every step of the way when I was referred, because I had to see some specialists, I was like, I want a woman. I was like, that is my comfort level. And that is my personal choice. I said, so for you to like, say that I don't believe in your values, so I'm not going to allow you to exercise your values or your, um, just was, we had a very long and sometimes heated conversation. And I said, look, if you really care about these women and their comfort and their care, then you're going to try to accommodate their request. Plus under the law, reasonable accommodation is a thing. Um, right. so <laughs> she had clearly done no harm work. And, um, when I was telling her that these are probably the reasons, because the thing is many of these, um, her clients were Muslim, but Islamically you're, there's no bar. Like for any medical reason, you can go to a doctor of any gender. There's literally no bar. And I said the issue here is not about religion. It's probably cultural and it's personal preference. Right. Um, and, and But she was just like, well, I just don't care. Anyway, yeah. that just reminded me of that conversation. Um, but I wanted to say something about – I'm yeah. sorry. I'm going yeah. on. Uh, go, ahead, no. go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I, agree. I agree with you. I'm a Nigerian-American woman, and I have only had – female providers except for one specialist who is a male because he wasn't doing any I mean I didn't have to disrobe <laughs> to right receive care from him and it's like what happened to the patient's choice like that is not it's not a thing where we just decide I mean because I'm a healthcare professional as well to read more into it I mean I understand and you're right when you said hopefully it's coming from a good place but the problem with that is that intent versus impact, right? <laughs> like, yeah, just because yeah. you have good intention doesn't mean your impact doesn't is yeah. jacked, you know? Well, so. and the, the the thing is this: this woman is a progressive woman. She's liberal, totally. but this is but this is liberal tyranny. This is a, this is the mirror image of the faith communities you're talking about who yeah. assert so themselves as a pro life. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Let me call it what so, it is. <laughs> right. So, but here's the thing. You know, I I've worked overseas as well. Uh, I spent the last couple of years studying ideological extremism in a couple of different societies, mm -hmm. including Sri Lanka, where it's majority Buddhist, and Pakistan, which is majority Muslim. Um, I've studied Israel, which we know is majority. Um, well, it's not majority Jewish, but the the authority is. I mean, in Israel proper, it is Jewish, mm -hmm. and the issue really, I, this kind of nationalism, nativism. Um, the deprivation of rights and dehumanization of minorities happens everywhere. Yep. And it always happens by the majority right. um, ethnic or religious community towards others. People think Buddhists are all, you know, uh, peaceful. Yeah. <laughs> well, in, in, in Myanmar and Sri Lanka, they are killing uh, 
Muslims and Christian minorities. In Pakistan, it's Sunni Muslims who are killing others. And this is a phenomenon that is, I think, a human condition. Um, in this country, well, as long as uh, people of color are in the minority um, and also underrepresented in places of power, we're going to continue to experience this. But there, there, are, there are countries where Christians are persecuted. So yeah. the, I, feel, I feel like the assholery is not, uh, <laughs> and the bigotry, um, it just it, it infects people all over the place. And it's really, it's terrible, but that's just kind of how the power dynamic plays yeah. out in different places. It's human beings, yeah, and and yeah. I say more. I speak out more against so-called Christians and Christians because that was the faith in which I was raised. Raised. Um, yeah. My dad's actually a prof- um, a, well, a retired professor, but a pastor, and okay. we were raised Mennonite, and so oh, well, my parents okay. still practice that faith, and I have kind of merged and definitely left church because I feel like the church has been very silent on issues that are very concerning and very alarming that I believe that Christ would have spoken out against. Um, So I'm all about Jesus and I'm cool with Jesus. You know, Um, (laughs) I think he would like essential oils and yoga just like me. And I, and I know (laughs) that he would like everyone. He wouldn't tolerate everything. Right. But I think that he would, do what so many people are doing tirelessly. People like you, people like, you know, other people that I um, admire, John Pavlovitz and other activists and advocates in different arenas. Um, So, yeah. I think think Jesus had the ability. I think Jesus was the kind of person who would live and let live and forgive and uh, and find the nicest, most easiest way um, to let even people who have who are not doing maybe things that are right, um, find a way to help them heal instead of um, punish them. Yeah, no, agreed. Well, grace, right? Grace and mercy and just having compassion. Because truth without compassion is brutality. And I think that's sometimes where we stumble. So I know that we're coming close to the end of our time together, and this has been absolutely amazing. Um, I'm so glad that you... Finally, great. So, friends, I just will tell you how sometimes I get guests. I tweet them, and I continue to tweet them, and I tweet them some more until they finally say, It works. I will come on. Um, Anything, any last, um, anything else that you'd like to share at this point? Um, You know, I... I didn't get to actually address your question about like what I've learned in terms of being American Muslim advocate. So I think I'll end with that. And that is this, that one of the big mistakes advocates make is to lead with the issues, is to lead with the facts. And those are not things that change people's minds. I can show you over and over. I can show you, hey, this is what the scripture says. You're pulling out a verse. It's out of con. I can give you the facts. I can give you the figures. I can give you the history. Nobody cares. It's never changed a person's mind. What I learned from Serial and other similar phenomena is that stories, human mm-hmm. stories that do not lead with I am a Muslim <laughs> might be what change, changes people's minds. So there has to be a point for us to and, – and so for people who – like, you know, who 
want to be allies and advocates and friends of the Muslim community and are working with people or have relatives who maybe, you know, are not so nice or the best thing you can do is to say, hey, come have lunch with me and and, and invite your Muslim friend. Right? I mean, like just introduce them to human beings. Um, that is literally the greatest, uh, like research has shown that the greatest resilience to like negative stereotypes about other people is literally just knowing one person of that that's other, right? right? And uh, that's all it takes for people to say, I don't believe that shit because I know that person. Um, And so really getting to know people on that level is what's important. It is, yes, it's going to be rigorous work one by one by one to know people. Um, But I don't believe in billboards and social media messaging and this stuff. It doesn't work. Um, But getting to know human beings as they are with their flaws and allowing also this. Muslims have lots of internal issues. You, You say you've moved away from the church. I am kind of unmasked in the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love my faith, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, my mother-in-law says, um, Islam is a great religion. Muslims are the worst people. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how I feel. You know, we, we are just like any other community. We have terrible people. We have, uh, people who are violent. We have people, criminals, we have abusers. We have all kinds of issues that we need to be able to address without suffocating from Islamophobia. So the minute I point out that this is an issue in our community we should address. When the Islamophobes and the anti-Muslim bigots like jump on that bad bandwagon to say, see, these people are, you're taking away from our ability to, to make our community better. And um, we need the space to do that. So that, that's what, what I'll end with. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. That's really important. I'm going to connect you with someone else that I interviewed um, for episode 43. He is doing some great work in some conversations in New York City and I think it might be a good fit I'm a connector so okay I will do that offline but thank you again so much for being here and sure sharing My pleasure. some stuff uh, with us and friends I have a couple of stories um, from humans of New York and then we will close in the usual manner so It appears to be a guy, and he looks like he's in a subway or somewhere in New York City, and he says, I've been trying to get into a full-time orchestra for the past 20 years. I guess I've been to over 200 auditions. It can be pretty heartbreaking. I tried out for the New York Philharmonic four times. One time I prepared three months for the Los Angeles Philharmonic audition, flew all the way across the country, and they cut me off after 12 seconds. But believe it or not, I still have a certain amount of optimism about the process, and I think I'm getting better. Then it looks like a gal kind of in a park. I'm having a hard time trusting the process. What process? The process that says, if I do my part, everything will turn out all right. And then finally, there is a... It was a kid that I saw. Oh, so it looks like, no, I'll do this one and then this other quick one. So a young man, it said, he says, I'm 22, but I don't think I'm young. I think you mature the moment you know what you want to do. And then what looks to be a little girl, maybe three or four, and she looks really excited and it just says, I'm collecting rocks. So... I guess the lesson there is that may we always be open, reachable, and teachable, right? And amen. look at the world um, 
with hope in our eyes. So I honor the place within you where the entire universe resides. I honor the place within you of love, of light, of truth, of peace. I honor the place within you where when you are in that place in you and I am in that place in me, there is only one of us. So friends, thanks so much. Have a gratitude filled day. Tell a friend about this podcast, subscribe, write a review. And until next time, namaste.